Thank you, Dave. Good morning, <coughs> everyone. Um, and yeah, I think in, in some respects, the gospel, the word always does challenge us, but it also encourages us. And I hope that that's something that goes together uh, today as we think about what it means to be God's people in the world, because there really is deep and great encouragement in knowing that we are subjects of the king of the world, the lord of the world, the lord of the universe. And I think that that knowledge, that understanding is what gives us uh, the ability to go out into the world and live differently and live in a way that is salt and light, in a way that shines um, and causes us to stand out when, when people are acting in ways that are not subject to the, to the lordship of Jesus. <clears throat> so let me read the passage that we are in today. It's Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 4. Live out your heavenly citizenship only in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, that I hear of you that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel, not intimidated in any way by your opponents. All of this is a sign to them of your destruction, but to you of your salvation, and this from God. For you have been graciously given that privilege, which is for the sake of Christ, not only to have faith in him, but indeed to suffer for his sake. In this, you have the same struggle which you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation from love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any compassion and mercy, then make my joy complete and have the same mindset. By this I mean having the same love, being united in soul, having your mind set on the one thing, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, considering one another over yourselves, looking not to your own affairs, but each of you also to the affairs of the others." So this is the part of the letter where Paul finally begins giving the Philippians some instructions. Briefly, here is what has come before this point. Paul, first of all, is writing to churches in a Roman colony that is deeply committed to the emperor and to the values of the empire. The colony of Philippi was given Roman citizenship, and they had a special relationship with Caesar Augustus in particular, whose path to being the emperor really began with a victory outside of Philippi. The values of self-assertion and selfish ambition were present in Philippi in a uniquely and particularly pronounced way. One of Paul's primary motives for writing the letter was that these values were threatening to seep into the church. In all likelihood, uh, there was a conflict emerging between two of the leaders in the Philippian churches, and we have good reason to think that they were starting to act like typical Romans toward each other, rather than like Christians. They were thinking of themselves first, rather than thinking of one another. So after greeting, 
and giving thanks for them, Paul prays for them. Essentially, Paul prays in advance that the things that he'll be calling them to in the letter would come about in their hearts and lives. He anticipates the teaching in the rest of of the letter, in his prayer. And he prays that their worldview would be rooted in love, and that this love would produce a love-informed knowledge and discernment, and that this love-informed knowledge and discernment would enable them to come to sound conclusions on the better ways. And these better ways are the ways of Christ, the way of the cross. Self-giving love and others-centeredness, rather than self-assertion and selfish ambition. And finally, he prays that, you know, in following the better ways, their lives would produce righteousness. So after this prayer for them, that they would be um, transformed and have their minds renewed in this way, he updates updates them on his affairs, what's been going on in his circumstances as he's imprisoned in Rome. But with this update, what he's doing is actually illustrating the very principles that he's going to be calling them to through his own life circumstances. He shows them that he has embraced his imprisonment and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And in doing that, in embracing that suffering, in in going to the lowest point of being imprisoned, the gospel has actually gone forward in the world, even into um, Caesar's own personal guard. And he also shows them that he doesn't care about his status. That there are people who look at his imprisonment as an opportunity to be on top, you know, to be the, the better preachers, so to speak. These people preach Christ out of selfish ambition. But Paul doesn't care. It doesn't bother him that other people get to be the top dog, so to speak. For him, all that matters is that Jesus is being proclaimed. And if he's imprisoned and they get to do the preaching, that's, that's fine with him. So he shows them what it means to follow the way of Jesus, to follow the way of the cross in his own circumstances. And then we come to this passage and Paul's first imperative, his first command, his first instruction. And that's this word, live out your citizenship. Um, it's, a, it's a politically charged word. Like, it's, it's more than just walk. It's more than just conduct yourselves. It's to live in a way that reflects the citizenship that you're a part of. And it's connected to a word he'll use in chapter 3, which is uh, um, your citizenship is in heaven, and that, that means like your, your place of citizenship. It means the, the place that kind of defines you as a political entity and provides the rules of conduct that you are to live your lives by. So Paul starts, the very first instruction that he gives the Philippians is this political word, live out your citizenship. And by implication, we can understand that he's talking about their heavenly citizenship. So their primary political identity for Paul is defined by their allegiance to the king of heaven. Their primary code of conduct is rooted in the life and teaching of the king of heaven. For them, that is what is ultimate. And so he tells them, live out your heavenly citizenship in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word gospel or good news is political news. 
Most basically, it's centered on who is king or who is Lord. And this is true both for the usage of the equivalent term in the Old Testament and it's true of the way that the word was used in the Greco-Roman world that Paul was writing to. The most basic message of the gospel is the message that Jesus is Lord. Which is why the gospels are stories of how Jesus became king through his death and resurrection. And why when Jesus goes around talking about the gospel, he speaks of the gospel of the kingdom, specifically the kingdom of heaven. So Christians are those who have confessed that Jesus is Lord. Which is why the gospel are stories... <coughs> I'm sorry, no, that... Which, is, um, which, is, which, which means that he is the object of our faith. He is the object of our allegiance. And when we do this, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we become his subjects. We become citizens of his kingdom. We become citizens of heaven. When we gospelize, when we evangelize, we proclaim that Jesus, the crucified and and risen Messiah of Israel, is the world's true Lord. And we call others to give their allegiance to him, to become citizens of his kingdom, to believe in the gospel that he really is Lord. And so when Paul calls them to live out their heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's essentially saying this, if you really are citizens of heaven, live your lives in a way that is consistent with the proclamation that Jesus is Lord of the world. Live your lives in a way that's consistent with the proclamation that Jesus really is Lord of the world. And this means that our actions reflect that belief They reflect the belief that the ways of Jesus are the better ways. We follow a crucified Lord whose exaltation came only through his humiliation. Now, to the society that lived in Philippi, okay, to to the neighbors of the people that Paul is writing to, that was counterintuitive. That was utter foolishness. They already knew the path to exaltation. Caesar had shown them that. It was the good news of Caesar's empire that they were familiar with, that they saw proclaimed on the inscriptions and the statues all around them. They looked at someone like Paul, pledging allegiance to a lord who had been crucified at the hands of Rome, who was sitting in a Roman prison as a fool, as someone who was out of touch with the way that the world really worked. And that's what brings us to Paul's next comments. So he has said, live out your heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them of destruction, but to you of your salvation, and that by God. For the privilege of suffering for Christ, not just believing in him, has been graciously given to you, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Excuse me. 
living out their heavenly citizenship in keeping with the announcement in keeping with the announcement that the crucified one has been raised as the world's true lord will mean that their allegiance that in their allegiance and in their conducts the philippians will testify to an entire world view that challenges the world view of rome and philippi so to the citizens of rome to those who hold its world view to pledge allegiance to to a lord who had already been crucified and <coughs> and to suffer as a result of that allegiance was a sure sign of defeat. People crucified by Rome were the losers, not the winners. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, a smell from death to death, but to the former, a smell from life to life. In other words, the lifestyle of true apostles, which is what Paul is talking about there, appears differently to different people. To those who are perishing, it smells of death leading to death. Those who pledge allegiance to Jesus are following a crucified leader to a similar fate, death. Paul will go on to say shortly later in the letter, even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, The gospel, the message of the cross, is foolishness. It's veiled to people who are perishing, who have yet to have their minds transformed by the love of Jesus, by the understanding that he really is Lord. But on the other hand, to those who are being saved, who have believed in Jesus and have their worldview transformed by his love, it's the message of the cross smells of life leading to life. To them, those who pledge allegiance to Jesus are following a resurrected Lord, to a similar fate, namely life, eternal life. Okay, we see the same idea in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I have to skip around because it's a long passage, but Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Later he says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. It's a word that can also be translated perfect, and we'll come back to that at the very end of the sermon. But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Citizens of heaven live out that citizenship in a way that's worthy of the announcement that a man crucified at the hands of Rome is the world's true 
Lord. In allegiance to this Lord, they take the path of foolishness, of weakness, of self-giving love and others-centeredness, rather than the path of self-assertion and selfish ambition. The world looks at this and they see it as a sure sign that their path leads to defeat, to destruction. But citizens of heaven know that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that this path, in fact, leads to salvation. Now, like Roman citizenship, heavenly citizenship comes with privileges. But the privilege that Paul focuses on first is suffering, suffering for Christ. Because suffering is part and parcel of following Jesus on this way, this way of the cross, the better way. So, practically, what does that look like? Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any compassion and mercy, then make my joy complete and have the same mindset. By this I mean having the same love, being united in soul, having your mind set on the one thing, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, in humility, considering one another over yourselves, looking not to your own affairs, but also each of you to the affairs of the others. So taking up the foolish way of the cross as citizens of heaven, living worthy of their Lord, starts with the way that they treat each other in the community. It means, it means taking up the worldview that we've, we've described already. It means, this, it means having a mindset that is united, that's the same. It means having the same love, Paul says. Focusing on, or, or having, again, this word for mindset, um, a mindset that's fixed on one thing, which I think is the gospel. Being united in, in soul. Considering one another over yourselves, doing nothing according to selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, looking not to our own interests, but the interests of others. Okay, our citizenship has a different set of values than the, citizen, than the citizenship of Rome did. For us, the way of the cross, this, this self-giving, other-centered way of life, it begins here. It begins at JCC. In the community of faith, we who follow this crucified Lord start by adopting his posture towards one another. And that means rejecting the world's values of self-assertion, of demanding my rights, of, of climbing the social ladder, of shouting down everybody else because I know that I'm right, that I know best. Caesar's way, just like the way of our own political leaders, is about being on top. It's about having and using power to bend others to our will. But the question is, what does that produce? What happens as soon as two people adopt that posture? Adopt the posture of selfish ambition. You get strife, you get division, you get quarrels, you get disunity. And so really it's a worldview question. The question is, which way is ultimate? How does the world really work? 
Because Caesar has one vision, and Jesus has another. Whose way is better? When all is said and done, whose kingdom stands? Since we live out of our worldview, I suggest that our answer to that question is actually more evident from the way that we act when power is involved. It's more evident from the way that we treat people when we disagree with them than it is in the words that we might profess. Living out our citizenship in Christ's kingdom is a profoundly political act with extremely practical implications. The two ways, the ways of Jesus and the way of the world, are so opposed to one another that following the way of Jesus causes us to stand out in sharp relief from the world around us, to be salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. The news that this crucified Messiah, this one, Jesus, is the Lord of the world. The news that his way is the better way, that triumphs in the end, that is good news for our world. Our conduct, which is rooted in citizenship in this kingdom, should be worthy of that good news. It should be worthy of the gospel. Paul wrote to the Philippians because the values of the world around them threatened to seep into the church to affect the way that they were treating one another. And like them, we are immersed in a political culture that's all about self-assertion, that's all about selfish ambition, that's all about overpowering your enemies. Like the Philippians, many people in our culture believe that our earthly kingdoms are ultimate and that our hope resides only in our earthly lords. Whether the vision of the kingdom is that imaged by Republicans or Democrats, whether the figure who comes in and rescues us from destruction looks more like Obama or looks more like Trump. People are committed to these kingdoms and these lords, and because they believe that they are ultimate, they despair when it looks like their side is on, has, has the lower hand. So we see real despair, real panic from people who see these earthly kingdoms as ultimate in the society around us right now. In, in recent memory, we have seen both Republicans and Democrats invoke the so-called nuclear option to avoid building consensus in the Senate around federal judicial appointments. Democrats in 2013, for judicial appointments other than the Supreme Court, and then Republicans in 2017 for Supreme Court judges. We have seen both Republicans and Democrats pursue impeachment for a president that they oppose. Republicans impeached Bill Clinton with support from 31 Democrats. Democrats impeached Donald Trump strictly along party lines. So these are examples of our political leaders taking drastic measures to overpower their ideological opponents. And in both cases, a cycle is created that gets increasingly extreme. We have seen the refusal to engage with political opponents increase significantly in our society. People just aren't even listening anymore. They just dismiss alternate viewpoints. 
We've seen insulting and vitriolic discourse get completely out of control. And like the Philippians, the values and posture of our world constantly threaten to seep into the church. I found it um, interesting and saddening that in July, President Trump chided some of his more vocal and radical political opponents, the so-called squad, by saying, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? And then just, just a few months later, in October, when asked for the first thing that came to mind at the name Beth Moore, John MacArthur replied, go home. That's just one example of how there are saddening parallels between the political climate that we live in and the climate in the church. If we treat each other just like Caesar treats people, how can we proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord? If we follow the polarized pattern of the world around us, how can we bear witness to a better way? The way of the world produces strife and increasing polarization. And everyone sees this. This is the thing. Everybody recognizes that this is a problem. We're all in agreement, at least on this one thing. (laughs) But because their worldview is not the way of the cross, no one sees a way out. Citizens of our earthly kingdoms look around in horror at the increasingly polarized society, at the increasingly vitriolic discourse, at our increasingly isolated echo chambers, but don't see how things could possibly change because of their understanding of the way the world really works. To give just a little bit will be to lose, will mean destruction. How can we be salt and light if we only reinforce that through our actions, through our posture, through our attitudes. And what is salt that has lost its flavor good for? Why would anyone want to become citizens of Christ's kingdom if it looks just like Caesar's, if it looks just like the kingdom that we're already a part of? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? And so then, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I said earlier that we would come back to that word. It can be translated as perfect, as complete, as mature. It's the same word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 2. Now we do speak wisdom among the perfect, among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are perishing. Instead, we speak the wisdom of God, hidden in a mystery that God determined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified 
the Lord of glory. The world is trapped in a cycle of power struggle and polarization because it believes that Caesar's way is the only way. The worldly politics around us are ugly now, and they will only get darker as the year goes on. Brothers and sisters, fellow citizens, there is another way. There is a better way. And it is foolishness to those around us who see in it only defeat, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. Let us live it. Let us show it in the way that we treat one another. Let our life together be characterized by the self-giving, others-centered love of Christ, a love that extends even to our enemies, that we might prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world. To do this is a political act. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are your people. Help us to understand what that means. And help us to live out of that reality. Amen.